General Conference Sunday. This is a special edition of A Woman's View. General Conference Sunday with Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Such a pleasure on this special Conference Sunday edition of A Woman's View to introduce you to a woman I am meeting for the first time myself and delighted to meet her. She is the new dean of the University of Utah Law School. Her name is Elizabeth Cronk Warner. Dean, thank you so much for coming. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I am delighted to meet you and want to learn all about you. But to begin with, tell me a little bit, if you would, about where your love of the law comes from. Where does your career begin? Uh, well, my career begins outside of my reservation in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, right on the Canadian border. Um, and I would say that I first became intrigued with the law um, as a young Native child, being aware of the fact, not quite understanding, but being aware of the fact that the law really disproportionately excuse me, impacts tribal communities because the federal government plays a really large role in everything that happens in Indian country. And so as a result, um, things that might not normally go to federal courts or that the federal courts might not be involved in here in Utah or outside of Indian country is very much a presence um, in Indian country. So being aware of that as a child definitely first sparked my interest um, in the law. And then as I grew and went to law school and started to see all the different things that you could do as a lawyer, I really, I always felt like law school was um, just my candy shop. And I was a kid in a candy shop because because there's so many different things that were so amazing and having the opportunity to make such a difference in people's lives and really help. But I would say I fell in, I really fell in love with the law um, when I had an opportunity to do a refugee and asylum case. And um, it was an individual who had just a terrible story of torture and persecution um, in his home country and, and very much was deser- deserving of asylum. And after being able to get asylum for him, he invited us to be present um, when his family came over from his home country. And so being able to be there and be with him and his family when they were reunited and just have that moment, it was really this crystallization of the law can make a difference um, and the law can do wonderful things. And so I would say that's when I really kind of fell head over head over heels in love with the law um, was having that experience. And it's just been a love affair ever since. When you can use that knowledge of the law in the service of good. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Right? Now, you are not just the first woman, but the first native yes. dean of the University of Utah Law School. Yes. That is quite a a feat and a responsibility as well, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a responsibility that I take quite seriously. Um, I don't want to be the first and the last, right? Um, I don't want to make mistakes. So often I've seen in my lifetime, and certainly historically, where you'll have the first of something, the first woman or the first person of color in a leadership role, and something will go horribly wrong. Um, And then sometimes I think people will ascribe the something that went horribly wrong to the fact that they were the first woman or the first person of color. Um, And so I don't want that to be me. I take that with a great deal of responsibility um, that uh, for better or worse, people look up to me as the first woman, as the first um, woman of color in that position. And I think it's very important for me to make sure that I'm meeting those high expectations. And so that's something that I think about on a daily basis. Um, Am I not only representing the College of Law, which 
in and of itself is a tremendous honor and responsibility and the University of Utah, of which I hold such high esteem, but also just inevitably people are going to judge other women by what I accomplish and other Native women by what I accomplish. Um, and so that's an incredibly uh, high uh, mantle to carry. Um, pressure. And so something, yeah. so much pressure. <laughs> I can feel it over here. <sighs> and so I just, I just don't want to make a mess of it. So it's something I take very seriously and um, am very thankful and feel blessed to have this opportunity. You have a wonderful faculty at I that do. law school. I do. How how is how is your are your early relationships with that faculty? I'm just in awe of my faculty. I mean, on a daily basis, they're doing something amazing. Uh, just as an example, there was a week um, this summer where uh, one of our faculty members was giving a presentation at Dartmouth University, and Justice Breyer walked into the room because Justice Breyer was really interested to hear what she said. I mean, how how amazing is that? Is that our faculty members are engaged in things that Supreme Court justices want to learn more about? And then in that same week, another one of our faculty members um, had the opportunity to give a presentation to um, SEC commissioners. So literally the decision makers in her field, she had the opportunity to go and present to. And then again, in that same week, we had another faculty member who was off visiting a different state um, who's looking at changing their regulations to come into compliance with the research that he's made. And he met with the White House in the same week on his really important research. And that was just one week. So um, I was just so incredibly impressed with the fact that our faculty are not only doing amazing research, but the decision makers, the people that as law professors we hope to have some impact on or would have some interest in our research are paying attention to our faculty and want to meet with our faculty and learn more about what our faculty are doing. So I'm constantly in awe. Our faculty are amazing and I feel really blessed to work with them. How is law school different now than it was when you were a student? Uh, so there are several ways that I think law school has changed. Uh, so the way I notice it is that um, entering law students are much more savvy um, about their applications than I certainly was when I applied to law school. Um, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I made some of my educational choices based on who had the best food. Um, so I was not <laughs> necessarily making savvy choices, whereas I feel like um, our incoming students are savvy consumers. So they're looking at the cost of education. Um, they're looking at what's your job placement after law school and being very thoughtful about that. And um, is this debt that we want to take on? Um, also, a really important conversation that we're having at the university now is um, wellness and mindfulness. So I think when I was in law school, there was very much this attitude of you're smart, you'll figure it out. Um, and that led to a lot of stress and um, mental health challenges in the law school. We know that law students have high higher than the national average in terms of depression and anxiety. And that you might think that that would spike in the first semester and then come back down, but it doesn't. It spikes and then it plateaus. And then um, law students and lawyers will have that same level throughout their entire career. So that leads to high rates of suicide. It leads to high rates of divorce. It leads to high rates of mental health challenges. And so another important thing that I think has changed since I was in law school is this willingness to destigmatize mental health and 
and to say, you know, it's not normal to have anxiety and depression and let's talk about it. And um, it's not normal in the sense that which is to say that's bad is that um, you shouldn't be dealing with that by yourself. Um, it's not something um, that you have to hide away. So, for example, I myself have anxiety. And so I think that's really important to say out loud um, and that it's OK for other people who might have mental health challenges along those same lines. There's nothing wrong with that. And so what we've done at the law school is we are working on having an embedded counselor in the law school to work with our students. Um, we have mindfulness run by Professor Cliff Roski every week. Um, we have yoga available to our students. Um, we have uh, just we talk about mindfulness. We talk about mental health. Um, World Mental Health Day is coming up here pretty soon in October, and we're going to actively talk about it. Um, so I think these are important conversations that we're engaging in. That certainly was not my experience. No, because, you know, yeah. that was not my experience. No. <laughs> I, and I think that's good. I think that's fabulous. I think this, um, you know, if anybody's ever watched um, the paper chase from the 1970s, oh, you know, turn to your left, turn to your left. twirling, yes, yes. Calling like, on you and the fear. Yes, the, the fear. fear. Yes, we don't. I mean, yes, as lawyers, we... Uh, have to take our jobs very seriously um, because we hold people's lives and well-being sometimes in our hands. Yeah. And so we need to take great care. But that doesn't mean that we have to live in this place of constant fear and, and anxiety. I, w- I wonder the impact that will have. Let me, let me hold it right there. Yeah. We'll take a brief break and be back with my wonderful guests on this special edition of A Woman's View. The new dean at the University of Utah Law School, Elizabeth Cronk Warner, is with me. Back in a moment. Special General Conference edition of A Woman's View continues with Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio. Such a pleasure on this special edition of A Woman's View to welcome the new dean from the University of Utah Law School, Elizabeth Cronk Warner, is with me. And we've been talking about a number of issues. And I, I wanted to ask you is gender still an issue in the practice of law? I saw this article just this morning. I should admit to everyone that we're pre-taping this earlier in the week, but I saw an article, Dean, about how the percentage of women before the Supreme Court is still surprisingly low. But I wonder whether gender in general is still the issue in the practice of law that it was perhaps when I was practicing eons ago. Mm -hmm. Is it still... Sadly, it still it still does play a role. Um, so, and this is a conversation that we're actively engaged in in the bar in Utah, which I really applaud. So many of our law firms and practitioners who are engaged in this question and want to make the situation better, um, because what has manifested in the past is that oftentimes really talented, amazing female lawyers will opt out of um, legal careers or at least big law jobs um, because they felt like the structure was not one that allowed them to accomplish maybe their personal goals um, as well as their professional goals. And so I certainly can attest that when I was in private practice, I remember our third year associate retreat. So um, the retreat for everybody who was in their third year of practice was a really big group and probably about half women, half men. Um, And then by the fifth year retreat, you saw a dramatic reduction of women in the room. And that's because a lot of women, for whatever reason, were opting out of that practice of big law. And that's a story that we still hear today. So for example, um, in the state of Utah, I believe that our bar is less than 30% female. Um, and there are definitely some amazing cha- champions out there. Even though law school Even though law school is 50-50. Huh. Yeah, so is we that have, family-oriented? Forgive me for interrupting. 
Um, I think for some people it is family oriented. Um, you know, I for I speaking for myself can say that um, one of the reasons, a uh, small reason, but one of the reasons I stepped away from big law practice is because it was really important to me to have a family, um, and I wanted the opportunity um, to be able to spend time with my family and really have that quality time. And so that was a piece of why I stepped away from private practice. And I have certainly spoken to other women, um, and so we're starting to have that conversation. We're starting to have that conversation. There are many firms here. There are many individuals. Um, And it's not to place the blame at the feet of law firms. Um, Sometimes it can be your client. So I was talking to one of our alums recently who was saying he really wanted to support women. He really wanted um, to advance women in leadership positions within his firm. Um, However, sometimes the clients were asking for the man to be the first chair on um, the trial. You know, the one who's actually doing the majority of the arguing at trial. And so that can put lawyers in a really difficult situation when you have clients who might be demanding that it's a man who take a lead um, in a particular situation. And so we've talked through about how you can have those conversations and affirm the women in your firm um, or in your practice group to say, no, 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 you really want um, this woman knows the case. She'll do a great job. Um, But I would say that those challenges still come up. I remember in my firm, Somebody once said, it's not that I think that women are lesser or are not capable. It's that I want somebody that I know who's in the trenches with me, who's able to be there at 2 a.m. or 5 a.m. or, you know, midnight, whatever it may be to get a matter done, to get a matter filed in front of the court. And so it's not for this individual. It wasn't an issue of gender. It was an issue of feeling like you're in the trenches together and we're Mm -hmm. available at all times. And, you know, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of innovation in the space. So, for example, um, there's a group, there's a firm in Utah right now that's all women, and they actually don't have much physical space. If they want to rent an office, they will. Um, but they're all mothers. And so they're able to basically work from home and still be present for their children, but do the work. And um, it's working. They've been successful. And um, so that's just one model here in Utah. And again, as I mentioned before, a lot of the firms and a lot of the groups here in Salt Lake are actively having that conversation of how do we create spaces? How do we be available? Um, and so I really applaud our Utah State Bar for being engaged in this question and thinking about how we move um, the ball forward. And have, we've had some great successes. What about on the bench? You have some experience mm-hmm. uh, in a judge role. Tell yeah. us about that, if you would. Yeah. So I had the pleasure and honor of serving as a district court, so trial level judge for the Prairie Band Potawatomi um, Nation of Kansas. And then I've also been um, an appellate judge and chief appellate judge for my tribe, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa. Indians. Um, And I would say that the way I saw the kind of the gender dynamic when on the bench was the level of respect that was given me. Um, So I remember when I was a district court judge, or I guess a better way of saying it is that I could be intimidated. Um, So I remember there was an individual I had in district court who was literally trying to physically intimidate me to the point that we had to call in tribal police um, to make sure that he would not physically attack attack me. Um, so I think there was kind of this belief that he could somehow just by puffing himself up and making accusations and kind of charging um, the bench that I would somehow this back was down. A, this was a, uh, 
not a lawyer. No, 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 no. It was it was a defendant. This was a client. Yes, a defendant. Yes. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. No, I've never been charged by a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to make that clear. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> but then on. The, so I, I definitely had those experiences on the district court. Um, on the appellate court, the way I would see it is uh, I would get these um, usually more experienced male lawyers who would come into court um, and who would try to pass off shoddy work in front of me. You know, say things like, oh, well, the state judges accept this or, oh, the federal judges accept this. And one thing that when you're practicing in tribal court is you need to reference tribal law. So my question would always be, you know, what's your uh, basis for that argument in tribal law? And they would just say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. In state court, they accept this all the time as as if I was being somehow unreasonable um, for demanding tribal court. So I would see that type of thing um, in the appellate court context. Mm-hmm. And, and then by the time I was done with that term, because I gave up both of those positions when I took the job as dean, um, I, I think I had kind of made it clear that no, 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 this was a different court system. We were not going to rely on the law of the state and that they needed to be prepared yeah. when they came into court. Um, but yeah, definitely saw some interesting things. When I first came onto the appellate court, um, a male judge who had been serving actually quit because he did not think it was appropriate for a young woman to be chief judge. Oh, for heaven's sake. I'll take a, a break and be back with my wonderful guest uh, this week on a special edition of A Woman's View. Dean Elizabeth Cronk Warner from the University of Utah's Law School is with me. Back in just a moment. Welcome to General Conference Sunday. This is a special edition of A Woman's View. General Conference Sunday with Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. What an honor it is for me on this special edition of A Woman's View to welcome to the program the new dean of the University of Utah Law School, Elizabeth Cronk Warner, is with me. And I am, along with you, getting to know this delightful woman. And I wanted to ask you, Dean, that because we're speaking on uh, a few days before the Supreme Court goes back mm-hmm. into session, actually, this program will air the day before, the yeah. first Monday in October. Yeah. And I, I know, of course, that you, more than most people, would follow. Are you are you looking forward to any cases in particular this term? Uh, absolutely. There are some very very interesting cases that the court's going to be handling. They're going to be handling the DACA cases. Um, they're going to be looking at some other executive actions. But of course, I'm a little bit different than perhaps your normal attorney, because since I do, I'm very interested in Indian law. Um, there's a case, Murphy versus Carpenter, which is really fascinating from a procedural posture because it was actually argued in front of the court last year, so a year ago. Um, and the court asked for supplemental briefing in December, which is really unusual in front of the Supreme Court, and then put it back on the docket for this term, which has happened, I believe, less than 15 times in the entire history of the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, it's very unusual. Um, It's a fascinating case because at the heart of the case is this question of how extensive reservations in Oklahoma are. Oklahoma has a really interesting history because it was originally Indian territory, and so a lot of tribes were sent there. Um, So were reservations disestablished um, when when settlers came into the region, when Oklahoma became a state, to the point that um, is this territory, is the Muscogee Creek's territory that's at issue. Um, and Tulsa, if the reservation was not disestablished, Tulsa would be within the contours of that reservation. So as you can imagine, it's a really interesting case because legally, I think probably most Indian law scholars would agree with me um, that legally the tribe has some pretty sound arguments because the law says that it has to be really clear for 
for a reservation to be disestablished. Um, and in fact, our very own Justice Gorsuch, uh, formerly of the Tenth Circuit, um, authored some opinions this last term. He's a big supporter of tribal treaty rights. Um, and so I am a big supporter of his and very much appreciate some of the things that he has written on tribal treaty rights. And um, so that language that he wrote this the past term upholding some cases involving tribal treaty rights could actually even help the tribe's position a bit more in this incoming um, term because now they can use that great language that he authored in the previous term to support their position. But on the other, on the other hand, so legally I I would say the tribes have a really interesting um, and I would say strong argument. But then you've got this really interesting political question, right? So you've got these big territories, including the city of Tulsa, which obviously is a large city, um, that would then be part of reservation territory. And what would be the impact of that? That's very um, concerning for some individuals. The state of Oklahoma, as you can imagine, has been uh, vigorously uh, advocating against the tribe's position. So it's a fascinating case, both in terms of the law um, and in terms of what the Supreme Court's been doing with it, um, because we don't usually see this. So that's a case that I'm very closely watching yeah. um, and very interested in. But again, I'm, if you had another lawyer here, they probably have something different that they were focused on. Um, and that's because of my I'll law watch that, that differently. Yeah, now. it's going to be an interesting. You case. mentioned uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch. Yeah. He's the one that came recently to speak in, in Utah. He did. I, I want to ask you about this because I saw this quote in, um, I didn't have a chance to, to attend when he spoke, but I saw this quote in the Deseret News where he said, nine people in Washington should not govern a continental country of 330 million mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. How do you interpret that statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting statement that a lot of court watchers have been struggling with. So if you look at the composition of the court, um, the justices that are currently on the court have gone to, it depends on how you define it, either two or three law schools, because um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to both Columbia and Harvard. But basically, you know, it's just a small group of law schools. They're all Eastern law schools. Um, thankfully, there are some members of the court like Gorsuch who are Westerners and grew up in the rest and may have understood the West. But that's regularly of concern for a lot of people in the West is that they weren't educated in the West. Um, many of them did not have experience experiences in the West. Um, So without even getting to racial diversity or political diversity or religious diversity, I think there's this really interesting question that his quote teases up for me of, um, one, what should be the power and scope of the Supreme Court, which is kind of the broader question, but also this fact that the nine individuals are not geographically diverse um, and may not understand when you're called upon to answer these questions of extreme importance to to certain parts of the nation. So, for example, um, a lot of states in the West nowadays are having conflicts over water. Um, and so as we have these water conflicts where you have a state versus state case, that goes directly to the Supreme Court because the court has original jurisdiction over that, which makes sense, right, because the states are sovereign. Um, and so it makes sense that their affairs would be settled directly by the U.S. Supreme Court. But if you have, with the exception of Justice Gorsuch, you have eight individuals who might not understand the importance of water in the West, 
um, might not understand the contours of water. Um, is this the composition that should be adjudicating those issues? And I think that raises a lot of questions. And then, of course, there's always these questions around the Supreme Court. Um, is the Supreme Court really interpreting the law? You know, famously, Justice Roberts said at his confirmation, I'm an umpire. I call strikes, right? I just interpret the law. I, my purpose is not to develop policy. But I think both the right and the left would say that there have been cases that the Supreme Court has famously decided that have huge implications on policy. I mean, I think we can name them, right? They're the big controversial issues of the day, abortion, um, affirmative rights, um, capital punishment, gun issues. Gay marriage. Gay marriage. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all issues that regardless of your political affiliation, you're going to have strong feelings about. And many people would say should be solely the domain of policymakers, should solely be the domain of legislators. So that's always going to be a challenge that the court is going to face. And um, whether or not they can just call strikes, as Justice Roberts um, famously said, is an interesting question, because I think the losing side, regardless, right or left, would say, "Mm, no, this really has more of a policy implication, and people are going to feel that way. So I think that's always going to be a challenge of the Supreme Court when you have a relatively small number of people um, who are called upon to answer these big questions. Um, Is that really a policy question or is that a legal question? You get a different answer depending on who you talk to. Isn't that curious? It's the losing side that thinks they're making law. Yeah. Um, I want to take one last break before we come back and and, uh, sort of address a similar question here, Uh, but put it in terms of teaching law. Mm -hmm. In this climate, Dean, where everything is political, Mm -hmm. how do you teach law in this highly politicized climate? That's the question I'll put to the new dean of the University of Utah Law School when we come back on A Woman's View. Stay with us back in a moment. This special General Conference edition of A Woman's View continues with Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio. Such a pleasure to welcome the new dean of the University of Utah Law School. Elizabeth Cronk Warner is with me. And in this last segment, Dean, I wanted to ask you about uh, this question, I think, is a challenge for higher education of all types, but I would think particularly for the College of Law. And that is, how do you teach any subject, particularly law, in this day and age when everything Mm -hmm. is so politicized. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first of all, I'm not going to claim to be an expert. (laughs) It's always a work in progress. Um, And my certainly my pedagogy has changed over time. So I can really only speak to myself. Um, But I would say that pretty much every subject we teach in the law is controversial in some respects, right? People are going to have really strong opinions um, on what we teach, even simple things that might seem to not be controversial. Property rights, for example, could be very controversial. So that's something that we deal with on a daily basis. And I'll also say from a starting point, I don't think we should shirk away from it, that just because conversations can be difficult um, or that people could have a lot of passion around them doesn't mean that we should somehow um, slink away or that we should not acknowledge them. I think it's really important to have those conversations because, you know, our job as lawyers is to be effective advocates and that at the end of the day, understanding and thinking through those issues is what makes us a better advocate. So you could have really strongly held beliefs about something and your client could have really strongly held beliefs. But if you fail to at least understand the other side's argument, you could have the 
best arguments on your side. But if you never deal with the other side's arguments or understand them, then you're not going to succeed, right? Or it's, it's, it's less likely that you're going to succeed because you will have an unresponsive argument. And so that's going to be really frustrating to the court. And so that's something that I've really worked on in my career is asking students to have some empathy and to try to place themselves in the shoes of um, their counterpart. So a great example of that is abortion, right? So people have really strong feelings on abortion, and abortion's particularly difficult because oftentimes for people, it's tied up into religious beliefs. And I've heard people on both sides... And there's just no room for... There's no room mm-hmm. for conversation. Mm-hmm. But I've heard people on both sides say, I just don't understand how the other side can you know, be for abortion or against abortion. People get really in- entrenched into their own views. And so I always say, well, let's think about it, right? So if you are somebody who's anti-abortion, in my experience, you are more than likely coming from the perspective that life begins at conception. And so if that's your position, then yes, it's murder, right? Mm -hmm. Because a life has started. And so I think we can all agree that murder is bad, Mm -hmm. regardless of where you stand in the political spectrum. So if you understand that piece, that that's oftentimes where people are coming from, then you can understand why they would be against abortion. Now, oftentimes, people when I talk to them who are pro-choice would say that they don't believe that life begins at conception, that it begins at some later date, and that therefore if the life hasn't begun, then we should be given women um, the right over their own body. And so they're coming from a woman's choice because the life doesn't begin until a later date, maybe when the child um, can survive outside of the mom. Um, And uh, people have different beliefs on that. But I think if we fundamentally understand where people are coming from, Again, not that we have to agree with people. And I may be slightly misconceptualizing the way people um, believe on the issue. But the point is that if we can at least try to understand... Um, it makes us better advocates. I remember one of the one of the most uh, challenging things I did in law school was moot court, mm-hmm. and having to go mm-hmm. back and forth between mm-hmm. arguing one side, mm-hmm. and then I'd get all my arguments in a row, mm-hmm. and I'd make this g- passionate argument, and then the next week, if I remember correct, I'd have to argue the opposite yes. side. Yes, and that was to, yes. right to your point. Yeah, a wonderful uh, exercise. Yeah, in embracing the opponent. Yes. Yeah, you don't have to agree with the other side's no. arguments, but I think you do have to understand the other side's um, arguments, at least understand where they're coming from. We in need order. more of that today. Yeah, I think that's in right. In society, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. if we could listen to each other mm-hmm. well enough to understand where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. I think that might benefit us yeah. in, in general, Dean. Yeah, what absolutely. Do you say? Well, and truly listening, you know, rather than I think oftentimes, and I find myself doing this, um, just waiting for an opportunity to interject. You're not truly listening. I, I would say um, another example of that is uh, myself and my own personal experience. I've come a long way on gun rights. Mm-hmm. I used to be absolutely staunchly against gun rights. Um, to be honest, guns scared me. Um, and so I didn't really want something to be around that scared me and obviously has the huge capacity um, to cause damage. But my, my husband and my in-laws were subsistence hunters. They come from a culture where guns were part of that culture, um, where guns are um, items that you inherit with great pride. Um, And so um, 
I've come a long way, right? It happens through understanding and it happens through being exposed, diversity. I was exposed to new culture, to uh, the role that guns can play in some um, cultures and some heritages and some families. And so it really moved me. And so that's another example of where I think diversity of experience and diversity in the classroom is so incredibly important because I don't know if I would have had that growth had I not met my husband and not gotten to know and respect my in-laws and their family and understanding the role that it plays. And so that was diversity that was brought into my life and impacted me and I think made me, um, I think made me a better advocate around guns issues because I feel like I understand them better. You have a broader perspective. I have a broader understanding, yes. I could talk to you for another hour, but <laughs> alas, our time is gone. Dean, I wish you the best of oh, luck. Thank you. And thank you so much for spending yeah. some time Well, thanks for having me. me. I really appreciate it. It's been a delight. Yeah. My guest on this special edition of A Woman's View is the new dean of the University of Utah Law School, Dean Elizabeth Cronk-Warner. Enjoy the rest of your conference Sunday, and we will see you back here next week on A Woman's View.